everyone. Thanks for tuning back into The Linwood Show. Today we have another Christy Burke video that we're going to be responding to. It's Deconstructing Adam and Eve, Why Eden Was a Setup. So, I think this will be a good one. Let's get right into it. What do you think about when you hear the names Adam and Eve? Do you think about man's rebellion and woman's natural gullibility? Do you think about the deceit of Satan and the goodness and grace of God? Do you think about original sin and man's need for atonement? If so, you were probably raised in a fundamentalist or fundy light church. Like millions of people across the country, I was taught that the account of Adam and Eve as told in Genesis was a literal historical account of the first man and woman. It was the account of their rebellion against God and his punishment of their sin and the introduction of original sin into the world that we live in. Before Adam and Eve sinned, the world was perfect. It was paradise. And it could have remained that way if Adam and Eve would have just obeyed his one command. But they couldn't do that. They thought that they were better than God. And because of it, they were cursed. And not only them, but all of their descendants as well, including you and me. And because of that, we are born into a world of sin with a sinful nature. And we must atone for that, but we can't do it on our own. We've got to call out to God. We've got to accept the sacrifice of Jesus. His blood has to cover us and wash us clean. We can be made pure. Our sin will be tossed away and God will accept us into heaven and we'll live with him forever. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That pretty much sums it up. I think that about wraps it up, right? I have found it so yep. helpful in my deconstruction journey to unpack the stories that I was taught growing up in the church and view them not through the lens of my pastor, not through the lens of my Sunday school lesson, but to read the text as it is and come to my own conclusion. I got Yep, bear that in mind. Read the text as it is and come to my own conclusion. Keep that in mind. I say, how I see this story now is totally different than I saw it growing up in the church. And now that I'm on the other side, I don't know how I could have seen it any other way. I really do think that God is the bad guy, and I think I might be able to convince you of that too. But I'm going to let you decide. Now keep in mind, I'm going to be talking about this story as it's seen through a fundamentalist lens. This is a literal interpretation of the story of Adam and Eve, which in my opinion is the worst interpretation. I think that this is a symbolic metaphorical story, perhaps a poem that expresses this uh, relationship between God and mankind. I don't think that it has anything to do with the modern day literalist interpretation in the fundamentalist churches. So according to Genesis, God puts Adam in... I'd really like to know what she's talking about when she's talking about the fundamentalist churches. Uh, I don't know if she's been hurt by someone in the church or something maybe she grew up in a cult but the notion that a all churches are teaching exactly whatever she was taught in whatever church she went to as a child or you know in her younger days um that that assumption is false and so i think there's a lot of throwing out the baby with the bathwater as far as lumping all Christians into this idea of fundamentalist church. In this beautiful garden, there's all these trees and plants that are good for eating, and he's allowed to eat from any tree he wants to, except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I want you to think about that. 
the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That is the tree that God told Adam not to touch. Now we're just going to put on the back burner the fact that God even put a tree in Adam's midst <laughs> and gave the gave him the first temptation. Um, but why is it that the tree of knowledge is the one that God does not want Adam to eat from? No, not knowledge. There's a reframing. Knowledge of good and evil, not knowledge. Why does God want Adam to be ignorant? Now God. Okay, so the Bible doesn't say God wants Adam to be ignorant. Should here here's kind of an example. Should children be exposed to the knowledge of good and evil? I'm, I mean, the true depths of evil, or do we protect them from certain aspects of grown-up reality until they are mentally, emotionally, and spiritually mature enough to handle it? This is most likely what God would have done if Adam had honored God's singular command. This is the epitome of you had one job. Uh, nowhere in the text does it say that that God would never reveal the knowledge of good and evil to Adam and later Eve. It, it, you're just presuming that you're you're assuming that, um, based on the absence of evidence or your based on an alternate timeline of reality that we are not currently in. God tells Adam that he has free reign over everything. The only tree he can't eat from is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that he eats of it, he will die. I find it interesting that a lot of modern English translations actually say, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die, almost to insist that death will happen eventually. But the original language actually uses the word yom, which means day, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will die, you will surely die. And this is very interesting because as you see later on, when they eat from the tree, they don't die, at least not immediately, not that day. There, there's the key. So she's admitting that at least not immediately. Um, was God talking about a spiritual death? Was he talking about a physical death? You, Again, you don't know these things. Um, and so to mischaracterize it and say, well, I mean, yes, the, uh, the Hebrew does say the day you eat of it, surely you will die. Now, if you assume that what God is talking about in that situation is you will die a physical death that we, as the modern reader, are going to interpret as, you know, that, that's commonly what we refer to as death, but as we see throughout the Bible, these things about life and death have much deeper meaning beyond simply the physical reality that we find ourselves in. Day, but we're going to get to that. So and, and it seems like she's kind of admitting to that. It seems like, um, what did she say? eventually but the original language actually uses the word yom which means day in the day that you eat of the fruit you will die you will surely die and this is very interesting because as you see later on when they eat from the tree they don't die at least not immediately not yeah, that day at least not but we're gonna get to that so after this god right, creates we'll eve from the rib of adam we all know the story there's not much to say there. So the serpent walks up to the woman. Yes, walks, because he had little legs. And he says to the woman, 
did God really tell you that you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman responds to him and she says, well, God did say that we could eat from any tree except for one tree. He told us we shouldn't eat from it, otherwise we could die. And I think it's important to note that Eve never actually spoke directly to God. There's no text that shows God telling Eve the rules. He told Adam about the tree and his command not to eat from it before Eve was created. And so I feel like it would be safe to conclude that Eve didn't get her information directly from God. That Adam It would be safe to conclude to fit your narrative. Yeah, sure. As we'll see later on, Eve was well aware that uh, God did not want them eating of this fruit. In fact, she knew the consequence of eating the fruit. Uh, the Bible doesn't say that God did or did not reiterate the rule to Eve, so you're making assumptions and arguing a negative again. Secondly, if God didn't tell Eve directly, Adam certainly did, as I said, because uh, she and he were both aware of the rule and the consequence of not following it. Thirdly, whether or not Eve was under the authority of Adam, as you put it, is inconsequential to the fact that as Adam's partner or wife, she was choosing, at least for a time, to listen to Adam and or God's admonishments. It should be noted that the focus of the story isn't whether God told her directly or whether she was under Adam's authority. I think I paused it a little too soon. The crucial point of the story is that God gave them one rule, and they broke the one rule, knowing the consequence. Adam was the one that told Eve about God's rule about not eating from the tree. But before the fall, before Eve was cursed, she was not underneath Adam's authority. Eve was under no obligation to follow any rules given to her by Adam. And if God never actually relayed that rule to her himself, why do we think she was under any obligation to follow it? I mean, Eve didn't even have knowledge of good and evil. How did she know she wasn't being deceived by Adam? How did she know she wasn't being deceived by God? I think even in her ignorance, she wanted more. She had an inner knowledge, a knowing. Strong, that independent. She decided later on in the story, as we'll see, to follow. So during this exchange with Eve and the serpent, she tells the serpent that she's not allowed to eat from the tree of good and evil because she will die. And the serpent responds back to her and he goes, you're not gonna die if you eat from the tree. God just knows that if you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will become like him, knowing good from evil. I think it's really important to pay attention to what the serpent is claiming. Is he really deceiving Eve? Eve then looks at the tree and... It's important to note here that the common refrain, every good lie has a grain of truth in it. That, I, there's a, that's true for a reason. Right, that, that saying exists because it's true. It's true that if you want to tell a good lie, you tell the truth and then you weave in some falsehoods. Um, and even even if you even if you were to say that um, he's not lying a hundred percent, he he's the tempter for a reason. Um, you know, we don't know everything that was said in the garden between the serpent and Eve and the serpent and Adam. Uh, what we do know is that he led them into temptation 
and kind of coaxed and goaded them into disobeying God. That's the important part. It's not whether or not what he's saying is true or whether it's not. It, the focus isn't so much on the serpent as it is on Adam and Eve's disobedience. She sees that it looks appealing, it looks like it's good for food, and it looks like it's good for gaining wisdom. And she decides to take a piece of fruit and eat from it. And I love the way this is worded, because it doesn't show Eve as being deceived or gullible. It doesn't even show her as being rebellious or um, following the guidance of the serpent. It says that Eve looks at the tree herself, that she sees that it's good for gaining wisdom. She sees that it's good for food, and she decides to eat from it. She follows her own intuition, and she realizes that there's something about this tree that will give her what she wants. She won't have to live in this ignorance anymore. And I don't think she has malicious intent. I don't think she has rebellious intent. I think she just wants what the tree has to offer. And besides, if God didn't want her eating from it, why did he put it there? Why did he make it so? So here's some non sequiturs. Why God were was doing something, did do something, did not do something is irrelevant. It doesn't matter why it's there. Now, I would posit that God was probably, in the event that they were obedient and didn't see the fruit as appealing and take the fruit on their own terms, that God would, as they mature and grow in their walk with him, would have revealed the knowledge of good and evil to them and would have allowed them to eat it. But to say that, you know, well, that's never going to be a possibility. Therefore, why is it there in the first place is uh, that's just a bad faith argument. So appealing. It's either a bad faith argument or you're, yeah, it's just a bad faith argument. So attractive. It says that the, the tree looked like it was good for food. It was obviously very appealing. If God didn't want them to eat from it, why did he make it unappealing? Why did he make it tempting? If anybody is deceiving here, it's God, not the serpent. Because the serpent is just telling Eve, this is what will happen. But God is... Yeah, just like God told them what would happen if they ate from the tree. Why, why are you defending the serpent here? And and you're making God the bad guy. That they're, they're both telling Eve what will happen. It's just, it's two sides to the same coin. And it's ironic that you find yourself siding with the tempter, who is clearly the antagonist in this situation. He's the one that put the tree to tempt her with it in the first place. And if he really truly didn't want her to eat from it, if he was worried about the consequences of eating from it, he should have just not put it there. So Eve eats from the tree, but it also says that she handed the fruit to her husband who was standing there with her. And I think this is left out in so many sermons on this story because I always thought... Yeah, I'm sure that when your pastor reads it, he skips over that part. ...that Eve was kind of off in the distance, meeting up with the serpent in secret and rebelling. Because of your false assumptions about a... Bible story that you probably didn't read to begin with, now that you actually do read it, you're 
you're surprised that Adam is standing there the whole time. And bringing the fruit back to Adam in a basket or something, you know? But Adam was standing there with her the entire time. Silently, I guess. He wasn't saying a word. While her and the serpent were having this exchange, he's just like standing there like, you know, cross arm, just like looking around going do 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 got the command directly from God. Why didn't he stop Eve? If he knew how important this rule was, why didn't he say something to Eve when the serpent was deceived? Okay. Um and why one second. Why did he just so readily eat from the tree when she gave him the fruit? He was his own person. He could have made his own choice, but he decided to take from the tree as well. Now look at this. After they ate from the tree, their eyes were opened. Okay, so when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then both of their eyes were open, yada, yada, yada. So that whole thing about Adam is standing there, do, 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 like, you know, a, a modern day cartoon is based upon the fact that it says that she gave it to him because he was also there with her. So I can't help but notice that there is a very modern um, lens that's being put on this situation where Adam is the bad guy. Eve is strong and independent and wants to pave her own way despite all the roadblocks that men are putting in her way. And the focus of this story isn't whether or not Eve did it first and led her husband to sin as well. Uh, the focus isn't whether Adam was standing there letting her sin. Uh, you're making it seem like it's all Adam's fault, for one, not telling Eve. And two, standing around while she's eating the fruit. Uh, the focus isn't anything that you're talking about. It's about the fact that Adam and Eve, both knowing that death would follow their decision, chose to disobey God and seize for themselves something that God forbade. That, and that probably would have been given to them on God's terms, in God's own perfect timing. But because they chose to take for themselves something that God had ordained, this is like the whole uh, remain pure and you know for marriage thing. God has ordained certain activities to be between a man and a wife and his wife. It, it and outside of God's perfect plan for those activities it is sinful activity it much this is this is exactly the same most likely i mean the text doesn't say that god would have in his own timing but as we see all throughout the story of the bible that is most likely what would have happened is god would have given them this knowledge in his perfect timing where have we heard that before the serpent, the serpent told them, if you eat from it, 
your eyes will be open. You're not going to die. They didn't die. Their eyes were open. They recognized that they were naked. They sewed some fig leaves together and made some loincloths, and they went hiding from God because they were embarrassed and ashamed. So here we are after they commit the big crime. They eat from the tree, and we find out that all along, God was lying, and he said that they were going to die the day they ate from it. Now, you can say that this was... That's a big leap to say God's lying, but okay, suit yourself. ...spiritual death, but the text doesn't say that. You have to add to the text to come to that conclusion. You can also... Take note of that. You have to add to the text to come to that conclusion. Lock that in your little noggin there for a second. ...also say that they started dying that day, that they were immortal, and God created them to live forever, but then the day they ate from it, they began to die. But that's not true either, because Adam and Eve were never immortal. They never ate from the tree of life, and the tree of life is what would give them eternal life. And so they didn't lose their immortality, because they never had it in the first place. Now here is where it gets kind of... I'm a little confused as to why... Christie's sitting here talking about immortality, not immortality, yada yada. Um, as far as the physical aspect goes. Kind of creepy and a little reminiscent of like a horror movie because God just starts like walking around in the garden and Adam and Eve can hear his footsteps and he's like calling out for them like, where are you? Where are you? And I just can't help but to picture like a horror movie where, you know, the victims are hiding in the corners and it's dark and scary and the killer is walking around all slow, calling out for them and taunting them right before he slashes them to pieces. It's just really creepy and it feels very manipulative, especially because we already know God knows where they are. He already knows what they've done, but he's playing some kind of a game. And Adam finally calls out because he gets afraid. And he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God responded and said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. And I so while that's still fresh on the brain, I don't know if she's a parent or what but if you out there listening are a parent you know that there are times where your child will do something and your immediate response is what did you do um that's most likely what god's demeanor is in this situation it's not like oh what did you do oh it's more like wow what did you just do he throws Eve under the bus instantly. Adam was there the entire time and he's pretending to be completely ignorant of the situation as if she got from some random tree and just gave it to him and he took it unknowingly. But no, Adam was there the entire time. So, like you said before, Christy, the text doesn't say that. You have to add that to the text to come to that conclusion. The text also doesn't say that Adam was standing there with his arms crossed just looking around while she was talking to the serpent. You have to add that to the text to come to that conclusion. Yeah, Adam throws Eve under the bus, and Eve brought down Adam with her. This isn't a you're more guilty than me situation. Both of them sinned, and both will be punished. Time and God knew it, and God saw it, and Adam is feeling really ashamed right now, so he instantly just throws Eve under the bus. Then God turns to Eve, and he says, what have you done? Now note, this is the first time we see God speaking directly to Eve. It's the first time that you see it in the text. Yeah. 
He doesn't talk to her at all before this. The first time we see Now, there's where you have to add that to the text to come to that conclusion. To chastise her for something that she's done. This story is rooted in the patriarchy, so I think we're going to see a lot of that seeping. Smash it. Smash the patriarchy. Through the storyline. Eve responds to God and she's like, The serpent gave me the fruit and I ate from it. He tricked me. And so now she's throwing the serpent under the bus and the blame is just rolling downhill and it starts from the top. And I'm not talking about Adam, I'm talking about God. The blame starts there. And I think that's. It's ironic that you're defending the serpent, aka the antagonist, in this story, and you're explicitly stating that God, the creator of the universe, which includes you, is really the one at fault for the decision that Adam and Eve both freely made, knowing the consequences. Ponder why you're choosing the side you're choosing. It's where it should stay, but God rolls that blame downhill to Adam by saying, what, did, what have you done? Did you eat from the fruit? And then Adam's like, well, you've told me to. And then he's like, what have you done? Did you eat the fruit? And she's like, well, the serpent told me to. And the serpent is blamed by everyone when really the bad guy, the one who should be blamed, is God. He's the one that set all this up. He's the one that created these people imperfectly with the ability to rebel against him, to think for themselves. He's the one that put the tree in the garden. He's the one that put Satan in the garden. He's the one that foreknowledge in his infinite wisdom created this scenario and knew exactly how it was going to go down and instead of choosing not to create the scenario or perhaps having more patience and understanding because he knew the outcome he decided to blame them for what they had done to guilt them and to curse them and punish them for what he already knew they were going to do it's a mess and i think that that blame should have stayed right there right god i mean you have to well there's there's a lot there um you're you're blaming god for creating humans with the capacity to think feel desire and choose for themselves it is because god made you with this capacity that you now find yourself defending the tempter who is the antagonist and villainizing God. To think, Adam and Eve are these newly formed creations. They have no life experience. They have no knowledge of good and evil, which means no knowledge of right and wrong. They probably don't know very much. They, they have newly formed brains. How much can you possibly blame them? Because I feel like you'd be able to blame them as much as you'd be able to blame a toddler for doing something they're not supposed to do. And I would hope that if a toddler does something they're not supposed to do, their parent will be compassionate and understanding and will teach them a lesson rather than punishing them. But that So they were newly formed beings who were probably ignorant of right and wrong. This is exactly why God told them the consequences for breaking the one rule. It's just not God's way. And God decides that cursing them and all of their descendants is the most appropriate response to Adam and Eve eating from this tree. God curses the serpent and makes him lose his legs. Now he's got to crawl on his belly and eat the dust from the ground and become the enemy of the woman. The woman now has to suffer painful, excruciating childbirth in order to uh, 
multiply the earth. She is no longer equal with Adam, and now she has to serve him, and he is made to rule over her. And Adam now has to work the fields all the days of his life and, by the sweat of his brow, provide for his family. Now, I think in all of this, the woman got the short end of the stick. She has to experience excruciating childbirth, raise her kids, and can we think of a time in history when women weren't also helping work the fields? And I think her punishment yep. is very unfair compared to the serpent and Adam. But that's just me. Notice in verse 22, it after God curses Adam and Eve, it says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. The serpent did not lie. The serpent said that they would not die. They didn't. He said that their eyes would be open. Their eyes were open. And it said that they would become like God. And God admits it right here in verse 22. They have become like us, knowing good from evil. And you might be asking yourself. It just, ugh, it makes me feel icky that she's spending so much time and she's so devoted to defending the serpent in this story. Well, who is us? Who is God talking to when he says this? And as a fundamentalist, I believe that God was speaking to the men. Now that's a podcast episode right there. Members of the Trinity. So it was the Father God and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. And God was talking to himself within the Trinity, um, saying that, you know, man and woman have become like us. But I never really considered what this verse was conveying. They become like us. What does that mean to become like God? Of course, it does kind of uh, expand on that. It says knowing good and evil. But to what extent? And why is it such a bad thing that Adam and Eve would know good from evil? I thought that we needed evil in order to understand good. But apparently we don't. We could just live in a world without evil. So that begs the question, why did God create evil and suffering? Why does it exist? So in order for evil to exist, there has to be good. There can be no evil without the absence of goodness. When God is proclaiming his goodness in creation, we call that good. Whether it's people being kind to one another, love, charity, beauty, etc. But if we did not have any absence of God, i.e. goodness, we would not know that the thing in question is in fact good. It just would simply be. Now that we, as God's creation, are experiencing periods where God removes himself and his goodness, we call that evil. Here's a simple analogy. Does a fish know it's in water? It spends its entire life in water, presumably without realizing that it is, in fact, surrounded by water. However, should a fish be forcefully extricated from its natural habitat onto dry land, it would violently and irrevocably be aware of both the existence of water and the absence of it, which it is now experiencing. And a fundamentalist will tell you because, well, Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world and now we live in a fallen world, but it didn't have to be that way. God didn't have to give them this tree, this temptation, the serpent. You sound like a woman, someone who's... Uh, who refuses to believe because you don't like it, not someone who doesn't believe for lack of evidence. There's a lot of I don't feels and why would we, why would he haves and, and things like that, which uh, sound like cope. You say, well, I had to because he wanted to give them free will. He wanted to give them the choice. Well, 
he could have given them free choice without giving them these temptations of these awful things that would create this fallen, cursed world. You're right. God didn't have to and doesn't have to do anything. You don't have to put a knife in a playpen with a toddler in order to give them free choice of all of their toys. You can put blocks in a doll and stacking rings, and you don't have to put a, a weapon in the playpen in order to allow that child to choose which toy they want to play from. This is such a bad analogy. A better analogy is that when you bring children into this world, there are naturally dangerous things in their environment. Roads, stoves, electrical outlets, etc. The argument you're putting forward is made in bad faith, but you already know that. Adam and Eve could have had free reign over the land, free choice of all the plants. God could have not put the serpent in the garden. He could have just snapped his fingers and rid him of his existence. But at the end of the day, we look at the text and we see God had choices and he made his choices. He decided to tempt them. He decided to bring about all these temptations and then expected them to know better. Without having the knowledge of good and evil, without having the knowledge of right and wrong, he expected them to know better than to actually make a mistake. And a mistake is what they made. And I wouldn't even say that it was necessarily an intentional mistake. And I don't even think that Adam and Eve would have considered what they were doing to be an intentional mistake. I think that they Did you read the were text? doing the right thing. And they were wrong. We've all been there. Of course, they felt like they were doing the right thing. You don't begrudgingly sin. You sin because it feels good or it's easier than doing the right thing. Furthermore, whether you think that they thought that they were intentionally making a mistake or not is irrelevant. The passage explicitly states that all parties were both aware of which fruit was forbidden and the consequences of disobeying and eating without permission from God. Of course, we've all been there because Romans 3.23 states, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do we deserve to be cursed along with all of our descendants for doing something that we don't really realize is so wrong? It really that's, makes you wonder. That's such a mischaracterization. I, <laughs> it's so dishonest. Why God was so harsh on them in his punishment. Why God was so angry at them for doing the very thing that he created them to do in the first place. And why is he cursing the descendants of these people who committed this awful crime? That's one of the cruelest things you could do to someone is to punish them for a crime that they did not commit. And yet, fundamentalists... I didn't realize that Christy here was perfect. Have you not sinned? This brings to mind John 8, and I guess... If you were present in this situation, you would have been blameless and thus stoned the adulterous woman to death. And evangelicals will say that we are still paying the price for the sin committed by people thousands and thousands of years ago. If you're a young creationist, we believe that this all happened around six to 10,000 years ago, but we won't get into that today. Yeah, that's another But we podcast. really break it down and you consider the punishment versus the crime and who suffers for that crime. It really seems unjust and unfair, which are two things God is not supposed to be. He's supposed to be perfect in his justice, and yet he has punished all of us for the sins of two people. So I went over in this in, in a previous video. God loves you enough to let you not be his prisoner and be forced to worship him forever. The punishment is the absence of goodness or God's presence and the abundance of life. That is death.
instead of giving us each our own individual opportunity to not be born into sin nature, to have our own choices and decisions, we are just naturally cursed. And when we sin, we are doing the very thing that God cursed us to do. We can't help it. It's God's fault. Again, the blame rests on God's shoulders. And it's yet nobody game, in the Christy. church wants to acknowledge that. They want to point the blame at us, saying, I'm the one that sinned. Well, this is the same as saying, quote, I'm cursed to have brown hair, or I'm cursed to being a human, or I'm cursed to having five fingers on each hand. When Adam and Eve sinned, they irrevocably introduced an aspect of you that can't be undone. For lack of a better metaphor, they altered the genetic code of humans with a gene that all of their descendants would inherit. I'm sinning. It's because I was born into sin nature and I was cursed with sin nature by God. Therefore, I'm doing the very thing that God intended for me to do as a human being, as a creation. Yep. No, this is a shifting of what Genesis is saying. You're doing precisely what the serpent did. God didn't intend for you to sin. Adam and Eve weren't created with a sinful nature or for the purpose of sinning. They chose that freely, knowing the consequences. Just as you're choosing freely to intentionally mischaracterize and reframe what Genesis actually says in order to fit your narrative. I'm going to be punished for that. And I don't have to be punished for that as long as I accept the sacrifice of Jesus. And then you bring in, you know, the atonement for the sin. And I'm just wondering, doesn't this seem very manipulative for God to curse us with something that we must be punished for, that is out of our control? It doesn't really seem to fall into the category of free will. We've been over this already. Cast the first stone if you're blameless. When we could not be any other way but sinful. And that we were sinless, but we freely chose sin. That is because of the curse that God put on us. God no, it's drove them out will. of Eden. They were no longer allowed to live in paradise. He guarded the tree of life with a flaming sword. It was very dramatic. And they were never allowed to take and eat from the tree of life and, and live forever. They were never allowed to gain their immortality. Can you really break the story down? And Thought we were going to be able to make it without an ad. If you're looking at it through a literalist lens, and you're considering that these are just people, newly formed creations that really didn't know the, the implications of their actions, did the punishment fit the crime? So we've been over this already as well. Um, the text makes it very clear that everyone in Genesis 3 knows what's going on. God made made it very explicitly clear in his rule, in his one rule to them. And again, whether he told Eve directly or she got it from Adam, she knew. Nobody is faultless. Should they have been punished? Should they have been tempted in the first place? Were they ever really given free will? My takeaway from this story is... So it sounds like also you're you're accepting the story as truth you're denying its validity based upon the fact that you don't like it you're projecting your personal sense of morality through a modern western lens and saying god made a mistake you're saying that these texts which are thousands of years old and have been seen as truth that whole time by multiple religions is wrong because well 
you feel like it. God wants us ignorant. He doesn't want us to have knowledge. He doesn't want us to gain wisdom and have open eyes. He wants us to be blind and obedient. And I think that's a perfect... Again, this is an argument made knowingly in bad faith. In what society have you ever seen do adults reveal every aspect of adult life, i.e. war, marriage, murder, etc., to infants, toddlers, or adolescents? Obviously, there are aspects of life that will be revealed, for better or worse, to the child once they are older, more mature, etc. But you, yourself, freely admit that Adam and Eve were newly formed creatures and project an infant-like quality onto them, yet you're expecting them to be ready for everything. This is a story of a parent giving his children rules for their protection and the children not listening. It just so happens that these children would be the parents to all humanity, and the consequence has cosmic proportions. And again, I can't stress this enough, it sounds like you're accepting the validity of these stories, but you're refusing to accept them as, um, as applicable or as true because you don't like the way that they make you feel. And... I would just admonish you. That's a very, uh, that coupled with blaming God and defending the serpent. I think you're playing a very dangerous game and I would admonish you to not do that. Perfect representation of what the church wants out of its members. I think the church wants us to be blind and obedient, to not question anything, to not follow our intuition. They want us to block ourselves away from the knowledge around us and to just trust in whatever they're saying and follow it as truth, as divine. So I think this has been a very convenient story to maintain control over the masses, to make the case for original sin, for why all of us are flawed and in need of what the church has to offer, Jesus. I would like to know, what control does the church currently have over you personally? And in what way does this story benefit the church today? You don't have to go to or support a church to be a Christian. And were you able to leave the church that you were going to? I'm assuming you were able to, since you're, you're constantly putting the church or fundamentalism on blast every chance you get. Furthermore, if you have an issue with church, I would invite you to go to a different church. If you don't want to go to a church at all, try listening to sermons online or try reading your Bible with a truly open mind. Try listening to podcasts where people defend the Bible. I obviously don't like or agree with what some other Christians say or believe in the minutia of what the Bible says. There's different doc doctrines, uh, different systems of theology, etc. But the gospel is this. You have sinned, which separates you from God. God wants you back, but you have to willingly come back because he loves you enough to give you what you want. The way you come back is through accepting the aforementioned truth and choosing to repent and believe. And if you don't accept that, we could face severe consequences that will last into eternity. That's a very convenient.
convenient story to spin to someone when you're trying to get them to stay under your control, to be obedient to whatever you tell them. And I think that this literalist, fundamentalist view of this story has brought a lot of harm to a lot of people, and in some ways unintentionally. But I don't think that it's the way the story was intended to be told. I don't think that the modern day interpretation is anything like the ancient interpretation. I think this is a mythological representation of God's relationship with humanity, not some sort of lesson in obeying God or else. If you're looking at it through a literalist lens, you're seeing God as impatient, as uncompassionate, as uh, unwilling to give second chances, as harsh and cruel in his punishment. And I think none of those qualities align with the narrative that the church is trying to spin on who the idea of what you think God should be in your mind. Who God is as a father, as your caretaker, as someone who loves you and wants a relationship with you. And I think the story as it's told in the church compared to God as he's told in the church are two completely contrary ideas. And I hope that more people are willing to view stories like this, not through the lens of their church upbringing, but to use critical thinking, to look at it from a rational perspective and realize that the, the way the church is spinning this has a purpose and it only benefits them. It doesn't benefit you. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed. All right. Thank goodness. Denying Genesis 3 does not shield you from the consequences of your sin that you freely choose to commit. You can deny the historical validity of Genesis 3 if you choose, but that doesn't change what the narrative is about. However, if you want peace with your creator, you must face that truth and then, as instructed in the New Testament, repent and believe in Christ. Thank you.